said together. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As always, as you are taking your seats, boys and girls, you can uh, skip out for Children's Church. Uh, as always, uh, if you are our guest today, your kids are welcome to be part of that. Children's Church is for our five-year-olds up to our second graders, for them to spend some time in God's Word, which is exactly, as always, uh, what we aim to do here as well. So if you're remaining behind, grab your Bible, if you would, and I want you to meet me in it. This morning, we have been bouncing for the last three months all over the New Testament, one book, one author, one section to another. Today, I want you to meet me in Hebrews 13. This morning, I want you to meet me in your Bible in Hebrews 13 as we are seeking today, as the plan is to wrap up this series we've been in since back around Labor Day, which is this search, uh, series, as it says on the screen behind me, that we are a church. We have been talking, if you've not been with us uh, at all, if you've not been with us for a while, we have spent the last three months together exploring the difference between merely attending a local church and genuinely belonging to a local church, whether this is your church or you're our guest today and you, you attend somewhere else, that there is in fact a difference between showing up and taking a seat and genuinely digging into and belonging to the family. And that's taken us a lot of different directions. Uh, it's caused it to touch on many different things. And this morning, I want to touch on one more thing and, and at the same time seek to wrap this series uh, up and, and sort of summarize where we've been. So there's a lot of ground to cover. There's a lot we want to look at here. And again, for those of you who may be our guests today, the way we've been going about this series, we've been preaching from the Word, we've been, been seeking to preach only from the Word, but we've been using something called our church covenant of fellowship to guide us, to give us the subject matter that leads us into the Scripture. So in a moment, I'm going to be referring to that one final time as well. These are the, the principles that we believe bind us together as a church. So with that said, hopefully by now you've found Hebrews chapter 13. This morning I'm going to begin reading... Hebrews 13, verse 7, the reading is going to go down through verse 21, where I invite you to follow along, as this is what the Word of God says. Remember those who led you, who spoke the Word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp, therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, we are seeking the city which is to come. Through him, through Jesus then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders, and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things, and I urge you all the more to do this, so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, 
Through the blood of the eternal covenant, Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And amen. Well, this morning we come in this sermon series to the twelfth and final commitment in our covenant of fellowship. Mentioned it a moment ago. Covenant of Fellowship is a document that, that lays out sort of who and what we are all about as a church. They are commitments that we ask each one of us by the Holy Spirit's help to make if we do seek to, to make this Maranatha our church home. And the twelfth and final commitment in our Covenant of Fellowship reads as follows, once again, as in past weeks, it's on the screen behind me. It is a commitment to support and to uphold the Constitution of Maranatha Bible Church. Say that with me. To support and to uphold the Constitution of Maranatha Bible Church. Now, for those of you who do not know, the Constitution of Maranatha Bible Church is an exhilarating 12-page document. It is riveting reading for anyone who dares or, 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 or chooses to pick it up and begin to page through it. And, and what it contains in those 12 pages is a delineation, line by line, word by word, of why it is we exist as a church, of what it is we believe as a church, and how, really the bulk of it, is consumed with how we function as a local church. In other words, the Maranatha Bible Church Constitution is a document that really expresses the nuts and bolts, some of which are actually required by law that we have in print, of what it is as a church we are all about. And while I would readily say, and I'm sure you would easily agree, that it's, it's certainly the least spiritual-sounding commitment of the bunch. If you've been here for the others, you know this one is the least spiritual-sounding of them all. I would submit to you this morning as we begin, it's still worthy of our attention. That it is, in fact, worthy of our attention. Because in a very real sense, what this twelfth and final commitment in our covenant of fellowship is, is a call to commit. It is a call to commit, that is to agree as always with the Holy Spirit's help, to agree with the Holy Spirit's help to worship, to serve, and to follow the Lord together based on a shared understanding, again, of, of our structure and our mission, of why we're here and what it is we're seeking to do. In, in other words, even this commitment, as it, it, I mean, it sounds more like an oath of office than it does some sort of spiritual declaration, but even so, it's just another way of inviting us, of inviting you to move from merely attending to genuinely belonging to this, or if your home church is elsewhere, to any other local church. And so while I'm not going to quote, much less preach from our Constitution, in fact, that's probably the last you're going to hear about it from me this morning, I want to use it as an opportunity to dig into this section of Hebrews 13, where we find, really in summary of everything we've looked at together over the last 12 weeks, I believe that in closing, we find four practices which conceal our commitment to the local church. For the last 12 weeks, we've been talking about committing, moving from attending to belonging. The reason we're here in Hebrews 13 is because I believe in these verses there are four practices set before us that if we'll take them to heart, conceal 
a commitment to the local church. And to make it very, very easy, the four commitments or the four practices are each one single word that ought to make them easy to remember. So as we get started, here's the first one. The first practice that I believe Hebrews 13 sets before us that can seal your commitment to this or any other local church is the practice of imitation. The first word I want you to see here this morning is imitation. Now, before we really dig into these words in earnest, I think it's worth noting that while we aren't sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, nobody's really sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, we do know a great deal, we're able to gather a great deal about its original recipients, the first people who read it. And I think the best way to describe who the original readers, the first readers of the book of Hebrews were, is that they were second generation Jewish converts to Christ. That means they had parents, their parents' generation had grown up before the time of Christ under the Old Testament system of laws and sacrifices, following those things as their manner of worshiping the Lord. But then at some point, their parents heard the gospel, were convicted of their sin, and gave their lives to Jesus Christ. Well, this is the next generation. This is their children and those who grew up with and around them who had also given their lives to Jesus Christ. But what the book of Hebrews makes very clear from the very start is that this second generation was drifting away from their devotion to Jesus. That the passion their parents once had that the passion, maybe even when they were youngsters, had for Christ was growing stale, was growing, was growing soft. They were, in a sense, people who were being tempted to abandon their distinctly Christian identity. And that's why the author, beginning in verse 7, practically begs them to, if you'll look at your Bible with me, he says, remember those who led you those who spoke the word of God to you. Now, it's believed that what the author of Hebrews, whoever, uh, whoever that may have been, it's believed that who's referring to here are, are spiritual shepherds, church leaders, elders, pastors, evangelists, whoever they were, people who had had a significant impact in, in helping these believers come to know Christ and grow in their faith, but had since passed away. And therefore, they're no longer available, they're no longer on the scene to look to, to lean on, to, to go to for help and direction and instruction. In a sense, they're now on their own. It's talking about people who played significant roles in these believers' movement toward maturity in Christ, but are no longer with them anymore. And what the author of Hebrews says is, now you can't go to them, you can't call upon them, but you can remember them. You can think about them and remember them, hold on to their memory, and remembering those who led you, look again at the verse, those who spoke the word of God to you, considering the result of their conduct, what following Jesus transformed them into, what, what, what serving Jesus allowed them to accomplish, and here it is, you should imitate, everybody say imitate, you should imitate their faith, not their style. Don't try to mimic their personality. Don't try to duplicate their gifting because God makes each of us unique. He says, no, imitate their faith. Think about the people who led you. Think about the people who instructed you and guided you. Remember their passion for the word of God. Remember their serious commitment to prayer. 
Remember the way they selflessly served. They weren't perfect people, but they selflessly served one another. And they had a deep and abiding, enduring commitment to corporate worship. And he says, the reason you should do that is told in verse 8. You should remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and remembering the conduct or the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Why? Look at verse 8. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words, times change. People change. Circumstances change. Opportunities and obstacles change. But you know what his message is here? And the message he's giving them is the message here this morning for us. Even though everything changes, everything else is subject to change. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and forever. Jesus Christ could do in them and can do in us anything, just as much, perhaps even more, than he has done in any other generation, at any other point in time in history. You know, sometimes as Christians, we spend a lot of times on the on the, in the past, and the if-onlys, if only if it could be like such and such a time, if only we could be like such and such a generation. No, 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 we're, we're, we're a different generation, but Jesus Christ is the same. And whatever Jesus has done in a prior generation, whatever dramatic stories we can turn to and recall and celebrate and get fired up about, you know what, he can do the very same thing today. And I believe with all my heart that he wants to when he finds willing believers who will come to him Imitating the faith of those who came before. Committing to imitating the faith of those who've come before us. And I believe that as we do, if we are willing to take this charge seriously, to imitate the faith, not try to replicate, not try to to redo what's been done before, but come to Jesus Christ with a fresh sense of expectation, he will begin doing amazing things in and through his people, maybe even in and through this church. And guess what? As we do along the way, if we share this commitment, our sense of belonging will grow. Our sense of not merely attending, but genuinely belonging will grow. So if you want to seal a commitment to the local church, first of all, you got to take hold of, I need to take hold of the practice of of imitation. Looking to those who've come before and, and, and trusting Jesus Christ to do in and through us what he once upon a time did through them. So that's our first practice. The second one is this. It's in verses 9 through 14. The second practice that can seal our commitment to the local church, I would summarize in the word, secondly, concentration. There's the practice, number one, of imitation, and there's the practice, secondly, of concentration. You know, I'm not exactly a fan of cliches, and I I work really, really hard not to use them in my preaching, to fall back on silly little statements that that maybe sounded good at one time, but, but really don't have a lot of substance behind them. But there is a cliche that has been used at this church since long before I was ever part of the family, and it has endured and carried on, and it's one that, frankly, even though it may sound like a cliche, and it's not original to us, I hope we always hold on to, and it's this, you know what it is, to keep the main thing Keep the main thing the main thing. I think that's one cliche worth hanging on to and remembering to make sure that our focus is always on Jesus. That whatever we're going through, whatever we're facing, whatever we're struggling over, whatever we may see in different, but we always come back to the main thing, which isn't a thing, it's a person, it's, it's Jesus Christ. 
And the reason I bring it up is because I really believe keeping the main thing the main thing is really a, a great summation of the relatively deep waters that are, that are presented to us in verses 9 through 14. Because the short version behind verses 9 through 14 is this, that perhaps, perhaps in response to their own awareness of spiritual drift, this second generation's aware. You know, you kind of how you know, you kind of wake up one day and you're like, you know, I, I, my, my passion for the Lord isn't exactly what it once was. I don't feel fresh in my faith. Something used to be there and, and, and right now for a while, maybe it's not been there after all. I think this generation was aware of that, of the fact that, that the fire that once was there for the Lord wasn't there in quite the same way anymore. And I believe that, that as a result, what verses 9 through 14 are suggesting, that being aware of that fact, these Hebrew converts to Christ has done what believers often do when they're feeling spiritually dry. They begin to prop up their faith with spiritual scaffolding. They begin trying to do stuff, do something to, to bring back that loving feeling. There's a cliche, sorry. But... but to, to reignite their passion for Jesus Christ. Now, for them, that meant returning to the Old Testament rules and laws of their parents and their ancestors. In this case, the author of Hebrews seems to suggest that what they had specifically gone back to, the way they were seeking to prop up their faith with religious scaffolding, was by going back to Old Testament laws about the foods you do and don't eat and the things you do and don't drink and, and, and the sacrifices that once upon a time their ancestors and even their parents used to offer. Things that, that the New Testament makes clear are no longer necessary thanks to Jesus Christ. He came to abolish the system of laws and sacrifices because he was, as Rick reminded us, the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sin. They were no longer necessary. They were no longer appropriate. But you know what, what was true about them? They felt spiritual. If, if, if we could just do some of this stuff, if we could engage in some religious activity, maybe that fire will come back. Maybe, maybe our, our devotion will be rekindled. Now, that's not a temptation for us. For us, maybe it's running off to the latest conference. Maybe it's grabbing the, the hot new Christian book. It's, it's latching on to the latest TV or internet preacher who just seems to have it going on, right? Where, where if I could just get near that, if I could get to that, if I could, if I could get this from the outside into my life, maybe it will revive my love for the Lord. But, but my point this morning, the point of the author of Hebrews in this passage, is that such things are not a solution. Because you know what they aren't? The main thing. Jesus is the main thing. He always has been. He is and always will be. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the main thing. And what the author of Hebrews wants us to do is to concentrate our attention on him. Not on what I can do for him. Not on what, what I think I need to do out of a sense of guilt or shame or, or whatever it is. But to go to him and let him begin to work out and in and through me what he wants to do. That's why he says in verse 13, look at your Bible. So, because we don't need to be carried away, verse 9, by varied and strange teachings, religious scaffolding, rather than legitimate, genuine devotion. He says, so let us go out to him. Who's him? Jesus. Outside the camp, 
bearing his reproach. In other words, without digging into the, the details, the author of Hebrews is saying this, whatever the cost, whatever it will require of you, whatever maybe even shame in the eyes of the world it may bring your way, how about we do what, what Jesus once told us to do, which is to seek first his kingdom and righteousness. Seek first his kingdom and righteousness. And then let him add. It says, Jesus said himself, and all these other things that you're worried about and need and wonder about, they'll be added to you. In God's time and in God's way, keep him the main thing. And I believe what the author of Hebrews, again, is communicating to us is that such a thing, concentration along with imitation, is a practice that will over time not only reignite our spiritual fire, but it will as well, again, if we're all seeking this together, it will enhance our sense of belonging. Church will no longer be a place where we show up and wait for the service to happen. It will be a place where we come and celebrate the one who called us together, who makes us a church, and that is Jesus. So practice number one is the practice of imitation. Practice number two that can seal our commitment to the local church is concentration, keeping the main thing the main thing. Thirdly, according to verses 15 and 16, the third practice that can seal our commitment to the church is the practice of exaltation. It's the practice of exaltation. You know, in the Old Testament, as sort of alluded to a moment ago, Worship was a very highly structured affair. There were lots of rules and regulations. There were all sorts of terms and conditions that you had to abide by if you're going to worship God correctly as he wanted you to do, specifically when it came to the matter of bringing sacrifices and offerings to the Lord. Now, if you've looked at the Old Testament, if you've been in a place like the book of Leviticus, you know that, that there were sacrifices and offerings of all kinds that people were supposed to bring for this day or that day, for this situation, or, or, or for that day of praise, or whatever it was, sacrifices and offerings. And there were all sorts of terms and conditions attached to that. For example... If you were coming to the temple with an, with an offering, with a sacrifice that required a lamb, well, what the, the law of God said in the Old Testament is you can't just bring any old lamb. You can't just grab the first one that runs up to you when you go out to pasture. If you're going to bring a lamb sacrifice to the Lord, that lamb, first of all, it had to be a male. These were God's rules. Second of all, it had to be a year old. Thirdly, it had to have no spot or, or blemish or deformity or, or defect of any kind. In other words, so far as you were able to do so, here in an imperfect world, you had to bring a sacrifice that was perfect. And, and the sacrifice that God desired. And, and the same sorts of rules and restrictions applied to every other act of worship. It was a cumbersome thing to worship the Lord in the Old Testament. But even so... The underlying, unifying principle of Old Testament worship was this. Beneath all the rules and regulations, behind all the terms and conditions, was this one principle. Bring God your best. Always bring God your best. And while, as I said earlier, the, the terms and the conditions of the Old Testament law no longer apply. They didn't apply to these believers in the book of Hebrews, and they don't apply to us today. The principle of exaltation still does. The same principle applies. Every believer, say every believer. Every. That means you, okay, if you know Jesus Christ, and it means me. 
every single believer, man, woman, child alike, is supposed to come to corporate worship bringing God, not your leftovers, your best. We're called to bring God our best. And you know what that takes? Preparation. It takes preparation to bring God your best. You can't do it on the fly. A personal commitment to exaltation as a way of life. To show you what I mean, look at verse 15. Through him, through Jesus then, let us weekly offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. No. Verse 15. Through him then, let us, whenever we're in the sanctuary, offer up sacrifice. No. Let us. Whenever we're able to get around to it and fit it in, offer up, no. My Bible has a different word there, and I checked all of yours do too. <laughs> Verse 15, through Jesus then let us continually, the word is continually offer up, a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. You and I are to be continually worshiping Jesus Christ, spending time in his word, pursuing him in prayer, and a practice, and, and, and singing as well. And that is a practice. That's something that we should be doing all week long so that when we come together, as we're doing right now at this very minute, in this very room, together with one another, that what we do here is a culmination and ultimately an overflow of what your heart and my heart have been up to all week long. It's meant to be the climax, the culmination of a lifestyle, a way of life of worshiping Jesus. And I got to thinking about that, because I hadn't thought about that in a, in a focused way for a while. But then I began to ask myself the question, and having asked myself the question alone in my office, I'm now asking it of you. Imagine for a moment what it would be like. And this isn't a critique, this isn't a criticism, it's simply let's Let's use our imaginations for a moment and think. What would it be like if that was a commitment that each and every one of us genuinely shared? That exaltation is a way of life. It's not an event. It's not a 75 to 90 minute gathering one day a week. Not that we're coming, to quote another cliche, to get our worship on. I don't know what that means and I never want to say it again. But that having exalted Jesus Christ in our lives all week long, having made him a priority, we're just getting together on Sunday for more of the same. Imagine how different, not just what we do here, but, but your experience of it would be. You know what I realized? If that's what we were doing, and, and many of us are, but probably not all of us, and I know I could be doing more. But if we were living lives of exaltation all week long, then you know what? When we got together on Sunday morning, it wouldn't matter if the worship team hits all the right notes or not. It wouldn't matter if we experienced technical difficulties. It wouldn't matter if the message didn't have anything in it for me today. Because what would we come with an attitude? We would not be coming with the attitude. I would not be coming with the attitude I often come with, which is what's in it for me, because it's for me. No, it's for him. 
It is for him. And you know what? If it's all about him, then everything else is going to work itself out. Because again, let's go back to what Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. I got all the other details covered. I'll give you what you need. That it's about him. Sunday would be so different for so many of us if we shared the conviction that this is the overflow. And what happens here may benefit us, but it's ultimately for him. And what if, don't stop there, as verse 16 says, we knew that worship is not just what we sing and say, but worship is also something we do. Get the flow of the verses again. Through him then, verse 15, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. So it's something we do with our voices, something we do with with, with the songs we sing and the words we say. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is, I would say parenthetically, also, I would say parenthetically, equally pleased. It's not just what we say. Worship is what we do. Worship is is a way of life. And that means that we change our perspective not just on what we do here, but what we leave here to go do as well, which is called serving, right? Serving Jesus Christ. And I think what the author of Hebrews is calling us to do here is to, to approach serving what we do in the name of Jesus joyfully, not grudgingly. Looking to meet others' needs before I look to have my own met. Approaching what God has gifted me to do and called me to do and positioned me to do with an attitude of how much can I offer, not how little can I get away with. And here's my working theory. (laughs) That's a church you'd want to belong to. That's the church we want to be where worship is something that we overflow on Sunday, but it's also something we do and we live as a way of life. It's a practice of exaltation that I believe would definitely, along with imitation and concentration, exaltation, would seal a commitment to the local church. And then there's one more thing. There's one more practice that Hebrews 13 calls us to that I believe if we take to heart, we'll seal our commitment to the Lord and to one another. And it's this, imitation, concentration, exaltation, finally, cooperation. The final thing the author of Hebrews calls us to here is a a practice, not just a spirit, but the practice of cooperation. Look at verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. It's talking about the church. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Let's take it a line at a time. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, without any context at all, that's a mighty big ask, right? As you come to church, obey your leaders and submit to them. And it's a mighty big ask that is is compounded by, for many of us, probably most of us, because of the culture we've grown up in, a natural mistrust of human authority. That that authority is not to be trusted. Compounded even further in the church by what seems like an endless line of abusive Christian leaders who have misused their power and done harm to their people simply because they are in a position of leadership. And so then we open our Bible and it says, obey your leaders and submit to them. And we say, not so fast. (laughs) 
That's a dangerous thing it would seem to do. But what we need to remember when we see something like this is that the New Testament is filled. It doesn't say a lot of things like this to the, to the church family body at large about here's what you're supposed to do in relationship to your leaders. You know what the New Testament does have a lot of? Instructions on how leaders ought to conduct themselves and what kind of character they are, whether they're a, an elder, a deacon, whether they're a, 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 another spiritual Sunday school teacher. If you have a position of spiritual leadership over others, the Bible has a lot to say on the kind of people we are to be and the kind of things we are and are not to do. And, and I'm just assuming that when the author of Hebrews said, obey your leaders and submit to them, he assumed that those of us who are leaders take it seriously. And we're not messing around and abusing the authority God entrusts to us. Because here's the thing. Look again at verse 17. When those whom God places in leadership are mindful that we will give him an account for how we led, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. I will give an account to God for how I ministered to and among you. And, and if you're in a position of leadership, and it doesn't even have to be recognized, but you're in a position of leading, instructing, shepherding others, there's, I believe there's a measure of accountability that, that falls to you as well. But if those that God places in leadership are mindful, we will account to him for what we did and the way we did it. And as well as then, as the rest of verse 17 says, those in the church family at large recognize that being disruptive or divisive or hypercritical of your leaders harms everybody involved. Look at verse 17. Obey your leaders, submit to them. They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. The literal Greek word means with groaning. For this would be unprofitable for them? No. This is unprofitable for you. If you create disruption and division, and there's whispering behind the scenes, the author of Hebrews says, that's going to boomerang back on you, and it's going to harm us all. And, and what the author of Hebrews is saying is that if on both sides of this equation, realizing we're one body, but God puts some in leadership, if we take the two sides of this equation seriously, leaders lead with humility knowing we answer to God. The church family responds in a spirit of cooperation and unity because we know to do otherwise, we trust that to do otherwise does damage throughout the church. Well, then guess what? Everyone who belongs to that church can be, as it says in verse 21, look at it, equipped to do every good thing to do His will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The work of the Lord on this planet will get done if we take this seriously, this cooperation. And for what it's worth, do with this what you please. For what it's worth, you know what I've concluded is the single most damaging thing to Christian cooperation and fellowship? And I'm not, I don't have one incident. I don't have two incidents. I'm thinking about 20 years I've been in pastoral ministry, 40 years I've been, in a ser been part of a series of church families on both sides of, of, of the leadership and, and the church family. And I've been in Christian college and I've been in Christian ministries and been on the board of an organization, all these sort of things. But the one thing I have noticed that consistently does more damage to Christ-like cooperation than any other thing, the most corrosive thing to any and all relationships within the body of Christ. It is not false teaching. It is not moral failure. 
It's not societal opposition. It's not satanic attack. Bad as all those things are. You know what it is? Assumptions. Assumptions. Say, what do you mean? The assumption that leaders don't care and they don't really know what they're doing. The assumption on the part of leaders that the best way to lead people is to control them. Give them as many rules as possible, then they won't screw up. The assumption just that we would harbor the idea that it's okay to harbor healthy suspicion. Well, I'm not going to trust you any farther than I can throw you. I don't really believe that, that you, you, you want what the Lord wants. The assumption that speaking my mind equals solving the problem. Well, I told them what I thought. That ought to be a no. The assumption that avoidance is a reasonable alternative to forgiveness. We'll just agree to sit on opposite sides. The assumption that attending is basically the same as belonging. And here's, now, I've had this theory, this idea in my head, my heart, for a long time. I got it confirmed this week by this passage. And I'm going to just say this, I'm going to give you the big idea, and then we're done. I believe the Lord affirmed that working theory I've had in my mind based on one word in verse 21, and that is, look at your Bible, in mine it is rendered equip. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you. Because what I discovered this week that I did not know before is that that word equip was the word typically used in the days of, of the New Testament for mending things that are broken, for repairing things that are torn. It's the word doctors used for setting broken bones. It's the word fishermen used to describe mending their nets, taking broken things, things that have become separated, and restoring them. And so with that in mind, listen once more to verses 20 and 21. Now the God of peace, look at your Bible. The God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, knit you together fit you together, restore you to one another, mend what has become broken in every good thing so that what? So that we can do his will. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I believe that when we understand that, that that's the kind of cooperation that God asks of us to come together to work it out, to get side by side in seeking him, that will also seal a commitment to the local church. And, and the author of Hebrews says here, it'll make sure that God's work gets done. The great commandment and the great commission will get done. You know, I often tell people who are visiting our church when I have a chance to talk with them, say, I'm never ever going to try to convince you you ought to make this your church home. That's just not my job. I'm not a good enough salesman to try to do it, and I, I just, I'm not going to try. But I will, and I say this, I will do everything possible to convince you that you need one. That, that floating is bad for you. It's bad for everybody. But you've got to find a place and make it home and commit for your own sake. For the church's sake, because the church needs committed people. And for the sake of advancing Christ's kingdom. And you know what I realized? 
I hadn't thought about this again until this. It's been a very revela- week full of revelations for me, okay? Another revelation that I had this week is, you know what that is? That's an act of faith. Committing to a church is an act of faith. What kind of faith? The faith that God can use this imperfect church full of imperfect people and imperfect leaders who do imperfect things all week long to move you toward maturity in Christ. It takes faith. Because <laughs> look around. How's that going to happen if it's left to us? But two chapters before this, the author of Hebrews said, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So why would that not apply to our commitment to belong to the church? And that's why today's big idea is that whether it's time for you to take the first step or somehow through what we've been looking at together, God is prompting you to take your next step from attending to belonging. Here's what I believe with all my heart on the authority of God's word. Christ will honor your choice to commit. Jesus Christ will honor your choice to commit. When we do what we do, What is he calling you to commit to today? Father, that's a